Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are beginning our study of the book of Psalms. We've been here at GCA meeting for 20 years. And I think we are finally at the point where we can approach the book of Psalms. The most difficult part of approaching the book of Psalms is figuring out how to present it. So tonight I'm going to give you an introduction and some background to give you a greater understanding of the collection of psalms as a whole. Hopefully we'll have a chance to look at psalm number one. Some weeks we will be able to do two psalms in a night because some of the psalms are short. Some of the psalms are very long and will take us more than just one week to get through. So let's start by talking about the Old Testament and the way that it is divided up. That seems like the best first big division that we need to consider. The Hebrews had a nickname for the whole of the Old Testament. They called it the Tanakh. The word is basically just T-N-K. And the reason for that word is because the Old Testament is made up of the Torah, the law, the books of Moses, And then the books of the Nevi'im, which are the prophecy books. As a consequence, you'll see oftentimes in the New Testament, people refer to the law and the prophets. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. And when he used the phrase, the law and the prophets, that was a Hebraism for the whole of the Old Testament, But then there was also a third division in the Tanakh, which was the Ketavim, which meant the writings. And the writings was the poetry books, the history books, everything that didn't fall under the categories of the law, the Pentateuch, and the prophecies. And then there were the writings. Jesus knew those divisions. He knew that way of looking at the Old Testament. In Luke 24, 44, he spells out those divisions, showing that he is very familiar with them. Luke 24, 44 says, Now he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me In the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, must be fulfilled. So he created, and understood, and demonstrated that threefold division of the Old Testament that makes up the Tanakh. He mentioned the law of Moses, very specifically, the prophecy books, the prophets, and then the Psalms, which was kind of the nickname for the entirety of the writings. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, very interesting phrase, 
that even his own apostles, who had been with him for three and a half years, didn't have the ability to understand the scriptures. He had to awaken them. He had to teach them, and he had to give them the ability to understand the scriptures. I don't have time tonight to go into that, but there's a whole lot of theology we could discuss right there, like the fact that Jesus just explained why it is that the vast majority of the world does not understand the scriptures because he simply did not give it to them. Have you ever talked to anybody or have you yourself ever sat down to read the Bible and found that you just really couldn't understand it? That was me in my young days. High school and college, I attempted to read the Bible, couldn't figure out what was going on in it, and now I stand here and teach it. The difference between who I used to be and what I do now is obviously that Jesus allowed me to understand the scriptures. So I know that experience firsthand. And here Jesus takes credit for the fact that in order for people to understand the scripture, he has to open their mind to it. So he opened their minds so that they would understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Now, the reason that I read all the way to there is He is saying that that reality, that the Christ, the Messiah, was going to suffer, was going to die, was going to raise on the third day, is already said in the Law of Moses, it's already said in the Prophets, and it's already said in the Psalms. As we read through the Psalms, we're going to find some very prophetic and very messianic Psalms. Our English word psalms comes from a Greek word, psalmoi, which actually just means songs. But our idea of songs today is very different than the idea of songs 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. The psalms were not sung as much as they were recited. In fact, if you want to get some idea of this word song, think about the Song of Solomon sometimes called the Song of Songs. But nobody ever sings that because it's not meant to be sung. It's meant to be recited. It's a way of remembering. And so throughout the Bible, you find these recitations. Very much like in the New Testament, you'll find declarations or creeds that are designed for the specific reason of helping people remember. That's what the Psalms are for. The Psalms are also very poetic, they're very historic, they're very prophetic. Sometimes when Psalms are used for liturgical or devotional use, they are referred to as the Psalter, which is why sometimes we refer to the book of Psalms as the Psalter. In other words, it is like a Hebrew songbook or a Hebrew prayer book that was also used extensively by the early Christians. In the New Testament itself, there are 116 quotes from the Psalms, including Jesus' own statements on the cross. I mean, among the last words that he said in his suffering, he quoted from the Psalms. So Jesus validates the Psalms. The book of Psalms is the longest 
book in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the longest book in the Bible. It has 150 chapters or 150 individual psalms. So who assembled these psalms? Why do we have these particular psalms all these years later? According to best Jewish tradition in history, it's likely that Ezra, along with some of the other Jewish religious leaders, are responsible for compiling the psalms into their existing order. So that means that it began, this assembling of psalms, somewhere in the 4th century B.C. And the psalms, you got to think about it, if you're Ezra and a collection of priests and you've been collecting these various different psalms, which we're going to get into in just a moment, you've got 150 different pieces of writing from various times and various places. Well, then how are you going to organize them? Are you just going to put them in some random order, or are you going to attempt to find something that unites various different psalms? Well, the book of Psalms, according to best Hebrew tradition, is divided into five books. According to the Jewish Midrash, they argued that the reason for the five books of Psalms is that they correspond with the five books of the Torah. Here, I'll show you what I mean. Book one, and by the way, you would think with 150 Psalms, you would think if you've got five books, you'd go, oh, okay, well, that's five books of 30 Psalms. That, that works out mathematically. No, in fact, some of the books are longer, some of the books are shorter. Book one, they argued, which is from Psalm 1 until Psalm 41, suggests the book of Genesis in its content because man is seen in a state of blessedness and then falling and then recovering. Now, the whole of book one is written by King David, even though Psalm number one and Psalm number two don't have an introduction to them. They don't have a title to them, but they're still credited to David. Very important among the Psalms are two names that you're going to see occurring over and over again, the name Jehovah and the name Elohim. In the first book, in those first 41 psalms, well, it's Psalm 1 to 41, so I guess that'd be 42 psalms. In those 42 psalms, you're going to see the name Jehovah 177 times and Elohim 48 times. So the name Jehovah predominates in the first 42 books. That becomes important in a moment. Book 2, which goes from Psalm 42 to 72, the rabbis said that it suggests exodus in its content because man is seen in his ruin and in his redemption. Most of those psalms are written by David. And the name Elohim predominates. In fact, Jehovah is only mentioned 31 times and Elohim 188 times. Book 3 is Psalm 73 to 89. And the Midrash argues that that suggests Leviticus in its content because it emphasizes the sanctuary and the tabernacle, the temple, the house, the assembly, and the congregation. Most of the Psalms are very liturgical 
And these psalms reveal how God in his holiness deals with his people. And most of those psalms are ascribed to Asaph. And both the names Jehovah and Elohim are about equal in their usage. Jehovah 43 times, Elohim 59 times. And then book four takes up Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. And the Midrash claims that that suggests the book of Numbers in its content because it talks about peril and protection predominantly. And many of those psalms are prophetic in looking forward to a time when the wanderings of Israel will cease. For those of you who thought, well, now that we're done with with Isaiah, maybe Jim will finally get off that Israel thing and that future for Israel thing. But that occurs in the Psalms as well, because as I keep saying, the Old Testament prophets all speak with one voice. They all say the same thing. So when you see prophecies about Israel, it's going to be about them finally landing in their homeland and having peace around them. Most of those books in Psalm 90 to 106, most of those are mainly anonymous. And the name Jehovah predominates again. Jehovah is used 101 times and Elohim only 19 times. And then finally, the fifth book, the rabbis argued, suggests Deuteronomy in its content because the emphasis is on the word of God, the perfection of God, and the praise of God. Those are the predominant themes in Psalm 107 to 150. And there are various authors. In a minute, we'll get into the authors. And the name Jehovah once again predominates. Jehovah is used 226 times. And Elohim another 28 times. Each of these five books or sections of the book of Psalms ends with a doxology or a song of praise. The final verse of each of these large sections concludes with either the phrase, praise the Lord or amen. For example, the final verse of Psalm 41 ends like this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Psalm 150, which is the final psalm, serves as a really fitting final doxology. It concludes the entirety of the book of Psalms. Gee, we're just beginning and I'm already talking about the conclusion of it. Can you feel the anticipation? The final psalm, 150, ends with, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So that helps us to kind of understand the division between these five books. They all end with these grand doxologies. Now, David is listed as the author of 73 of these psalms. Asaph is credited with 12. The sons of Korah are credited with another 12. There are also psalms in here that are written by Solomon, by Haman the Ezraite, Ethan the Ezraite, and Moses is even the author of one of the psalms, Psalm number 90. 49 of the psalms are anonymous. The earliest extant copies of the psalms that we have actually come from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and part of the reason that's interesting is 
It was the most copied book found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that proves, by the way, that the order of the Psalms that we have now is the same order of Psalms that reaches all the way back into the B.C. period. It reaches back pre-Christ, reaches back to the second century B.C., at least that far back, and predating that because this order is already established. This order of Psalms was, is ancient in its creation. In fact, as I mentioned, the Psalms is one of the most popular writings among the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are actually 30 different Dead Sea Scrolls that were found, 30 scrolls of all or part of the Book of Psalms. So you can see how beloved it was, how cherished it was among the Essenes and among the second century Jewish audience. Overall, the Book of Psalms is the book of the Old Testament that we still have the most Hebrew manuscripts of. That's how often it was copied. So it had this very enduring, beloved popularity. As we go through these psalms, these 150 psalms over the course of the next do the math three years, as we go through them, we're going to see certain recurrent themes. And I will tell you right up front what those themes are. According to the rabbis, one of the predominant themes of the book of Psalms is the human soul in its crying out for God. They also point out that the Psalms are focused on Jehovah as God. In fact, the Psalms talk about adoration and praise. We'll keep seeing hallelujah show up. Psalms about thanksgiving, Psalms about God as a refuge. And then psalms about contrasting God with idols, proving that Jehovah is the only true God. And of course, anybody who knows the psalms at all, even if you only know the 23rd psalm, you know that the psalms are full of petitions for help, people crying out to God to preserve them and protect them and heal them. There are psalms about Practicing God's presence, being aware of him in all times and all circumstances. There are psalms about God as an eternal king and God as a shepherd. Again, if you only know the 23rd psalm, it starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. There are messianic themes. For instance, in the psalms, we're going to read about Messiah's humiliation. We're going to read about Messiah's resurrection. Messiah's present priestly ministry. We're going to read about Messiah's coronation and Messiah's ultimate kingdom. That's all in the Psalms. The Psalms also recall Israel's history, going through the outstanding events in Israel's history. You can learn both the history and the future and the present of Israel just by reading the Psalms. There are also Psalms for specific occasions, like when there were pilgrimages three times a year to Jerusalem, they would sing the Psalm of Ascent because it was part of the recitation that they would share with each other as they were going up to Jerusalem. There are psalms to celebrate a victory. There are psalms about the laying of the temple foundation. 
These are psalms that are very specific to specific moments in time and Israel's history. Another of the things that you're going to see as we go through the psalms is that the psalms really emphasize the very thing that I've been trying to emphasize for 20 years. They emphasize the Word of God, the importance and the necessity of the Word of God. They also talk a lot about the sanctuary and the law of God. And in fact, the very first of the psalms, which we're going to look at tonight, David talks about delighting in the law of God. And so we have to understand what that is, Torah. Torah means much more than just law. As we say the word law now, we think of like speed limit or something like that, where like if you cross that line, you've broken the law. The law is just simple and unbending. But Torah is more than that. It is instruction from God. It is teaching from God. And it is how to have a better life from God by following the instruction of God. That's the way that David sees the law, Torah. He sees it as the valuable instruction of God. And that is very much the Hebrew mindset, which is why Paul in Romans 7 would argue that the law of God, the Torah of God, is good, is right, is holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's fine. Paul argues the problem is us. But the law is really, really good. So sometimes we as New Testament Christians, we read the word law in the Old Testament. And we say, well, of course, David liked the law. He was under the law. He wasn't that far removed from the giving of the law. And so, of course, he didn't know the gospel yet. He didn't know salvation by grace through faith yet. He didn't know the new covenant yet. He didn't. And so when he says law... He's talking about something that doesn't really apply to us. But what David is really saying is the instruction of God is valuable to how you live, how you conduct yourself, and how you think about God. Because there is so much in the Torah that is instructional toward God, and those instructions don't change. Those instructions are still instructions about God, who he is, what he's like and valuable for our learning. So there's a lot about the law, the Torah in the Psalms. There's Psalms about God's creation. There are what is known as imprecatory Psalms, which is actually Psalms calling for the wrath of God to fall on the enemies of God's people. There are Hallel Psalms, which were songs that were sung by families on the night of Passover. There are hallelujah psalms. They each begin and end with the word hallelujah. And of course there are messianic psalms as Jesus himself declared the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah is already predicted in the law, in the prophets, and in the psalms. And one more thing we're going to see repeatedly in the Psalms, and you're probably tired of hearing me talk about it, is the ego, the pride of man. As I've said over and over again, the most often cited sin in the Bible is pride, arrogance. That human sense that we are the know-all and end-all of life and that the whole universe revolves around us. And what we think and what our opinion is. And you're going to see 
a lot about the rage and the pride of human beings as they protest against God. Some psalms, and I find these fascinating, are what are known as acrostic psalms. In other words, they're alphabetic. In fact, one of the larger psalms actually is the Hebrew alphabet where every line starts with the next letter in the alphabet. So not only is it praiseworthy toward God, but it's also just creative poetry. It's creative writing. I took a class in college called Creative Writing, and nobody ever bothered to say, now, have you ever read the Psalms? Because some of those are just really creative. Think about sitting down to write praise to God, but limiting yourself to each letter of the alphabet as you go. That's just really smart writing. There's one psalm that we are going to bump into that is known as the Psalm of Degrees because it was thought to be composed by Hezekiah when the shadow of the sundial went back 10 degrees. We're going to see psalms of penitence. We're going to see psalms of ethics. We're going to see psalms, lots of psalms of praise. We're going to see ceremonial psalms. And as I mentioned, even prayers to defeat somebody's enemies. And then we're going to see historical psalms. In other words, number one, it's not going to be boring. Number two, there is no portion of human life and our relationship with our maker that is not addressed somewhere in the psalms. So you can see why the psalms were so beloved and so cherished so protected, so copied over and over by the early Hebrews and why the Psalms were handed down in the order we have them, handed down and copied over and over and handed to the church. So we're actually going to take this book by book. Part of the difficulty with approaching the Psalms, as I told Tom several times, I said, I just don't know how to organize it. And then the more I looked at it and saw that Ezra already did the organizing work, I thought, well, why mess with perfection? Because these psalms have been in this order for a couple thousand years now. Why would I come along and think, I could probably come up with a better order? So we're going to start tonight at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is only six verses, which means you're going to get out of here a little earlier than usual. It's only six verses, but it really does lay out a perfect setting for the whole rest of the Psalms because it describes all mankind as falling into one of two categories. We've talked about this often, that ever since the Garden of Eden, when God divided the seed of the serpent from the seed of the woman, God created two categories of human beings. Here in Psalm 1, David is going to do the exact same thing, and he's going to contrast the wicked and the righteous. And those are the only two categories that exist. It doesn't matter if you think you're kind of neutral or sort of okay. That doesn't count. The Bible over and over again keeps saying that you're either righteous or you're wicked. And the first psalm creates a stark division between the righteous 
and the unrighteous evil on the planet and tells the righteous to separate from the evil. It starts this way. Psalm 1-1. Boy, I've waited a long time to say those words. <laughs> Psalm 1-1. How blessed that word is sometimes translated happy. It means to be spiritually prosperous. It means to be in a state where you are receiving blessings from God. And it also is the direct opposite of someone who is under the curse or the hardship of God. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now this verse talks about walking. In a moment we're going to talk about standing and then talking about sitting. All of those verbs indicate that you're partnering up with, you're spending time with, even though you know that the people you're hanging out with are part of this wicked world, you continue to partner up with them. You walk alongside them. You sit down with them. You converse with them. You eat with them. You partner with them. You stand with them. In the society at large, they would look at a group of evil people. You'd be among them, and people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And yet David says, the blessed man is the man who doesn't do that. If you're righteous, if you belong to God, then you don't act like, you don't look like, you don't walk like the enemies of God in this present evil world. Separate yourself from them. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? That word counsel means advice, listening to them, paying attention. What do you think? Well, wicked people aren't going to think anything good. And as we know, evil company corrupts good manners. If you're walking with the evil, sooner or later, you're going to reflect the evil. Sooner or later, their way of thinking, their way of being is just going to affect you. And so, yes, it would be a blessing to avoid that. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. Same idea. The sinners of this world, by the way, were just equated with the wicked. Wicked sinners. Don't stand with them. Don't walk with them. Don't hang out with them. Don't party with them. Don't be associated with them. Don't stand in the path of sinners. And don't sit in the seat of scoffers. That doesn't mean that if a cynic, a scoffer, a God-hater, an arguer, a debater of this world, that doesn't mean if he gets up from his chair, don't sit in his chair. What it means is when he is sitting and holding counsel, when he is having influence and sway, don't be there with him. Don't sit with him. The leaders of any major city in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago, several thousand years ago, would sit in the gate of the city. That was the, the meeting place where the judges and the leaders, the political leaders, the older men, the wise men, the city leaders, they would sit in the gate. And if you had some complaint or some question, you would go to the gate of the city. 
but they'd be sitting there. That's what David is referencing here. Don't find yourself sitting as if you're in agreement with wicked people. Do not sit in the seat of scoffers. But, verse 2, the delight of the blessed man is not in scoffers, is not in sinful people, it's not in the wicked people. His delight is in the teaching of God, the Torah of God, the law of God. Okay, so there's a huge contrast. David just contrasted the wickedness of this world with the instruction of God. And he created such a division between the two that you can't be part of both. You don't sit, stand, walk with the wicked sinners and the scoffers and the cynics and the God-haters. You have no part with them because you delight in the teaching of God. So there's an enormous contrast right there. The book of Psalms starts with this huge contrast between wicked people and people who care about the things of God, righteous people. His delight is in the Torah, the law of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night, which means you don't get to say lip service. You don't just get to walk around saying, oh, yeah, yeah, Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah, God-fearer. Yeah, I, yeah, I believe God, yeah. The prerequisite to saying that you delight in the law of God is that you actually study the law of God. You actually pay attention to the word of God. You listen to the teaching of God. And David says, day and night, it's a constant practice. It's how you live. It's who you are. You are constantly aware of God in your life. And so you seek to study his word to understand more about him and your relationship with him. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law of God, he meditates day and night. A person who's like that, the next verse says, is a person who's established. It's very much like James writing that there are people who are unstable as water. Or there are people who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The idea of stability comes from paying attention to the word of God. Here, I'll put it this way. I can simplify it for you. The world is right now, and has always been, but right now seems particularly so, uh, a little nutty. Would we all agree with that? Little crazy, little wacky, little out of sorts at this very moment. We're not worried. Why aren't we worried? Because God's sovereign. God's in charge. We know the word of God. We know what it says. We know the God of this Bible. Therefore, we know that whatever is happening in the world right now is exactly what God determined was going to happen. And that gives us confidence. It gives us the peace that passes understanding. That gives us the ability to walk through this insane world and say, it's okay. I'm going to be all right. God's got this too. Well, David's saying the exact same thing. That if your delight is in the Torah, the teaching of God, and you read it, and you pay attention to it, and you study it day and night, that person will be like a tree that is planted by streams of water in order to emphasize that planting. The NASB added the word firmly, not just planted, but established 
firmly planted by streams of water. By the way, trees that grow up next to streams of water are the big healthy trees because they have ready access to water. So big, healthy, firmly planted trees by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The modern name it, claim it church has done a lot of damage to that word prospers because it makes us think, oh, well, that verse right there says that if I follow the Torah of God and pay attention to his word, that I can have a better car and a bigger house and my children will run faster and jump higher and no one will ever make fun of me because I'm prosperous, doggone it. It's not what it means. Old Testament prospering means to live in unity with God, to have a mind toward God, to prosper in spiritual things and therefore be taken care of and protected in this lifetime. Sometimes I think the name it claim it folks get the cart before the horse and they say, God wants you to be rich and powerful and strong and have everything you ever wanted. And they leave out the part where you study God and learn about God and walk after God. That's the important part. That's the prosperous part. And then God will take care of everything else. It's very much like Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Keep those things in order and then you can understand what David's talking about when he uses the word prospering. And then I think the other phrases are pretty obvious. He's describing a healthy tree. He's by a stream of water. It continually yields fruit. Its leaf doesn't wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. There's the contrast again. The wicked are not like that. The wicked are going to shrivel up. The, in fact, he puts it this way. They're going to be like chaff when the wind drives it away. Anybody here spend any time separating wheat from chaff? Anybody here got a threshing floor at home? Anybody? The idea of a threshing floor, the way it would work, is that you would take the husks off wheat or any kind of grain. You'd take it to the threshing floor, which would have like a screen underneath it, but then you would beat on the grain to separate the husk from the grain, And the husk is lighter than the grain, so then you would throw it up in the air, and the wind would carry away the husk, and the stuff that would fall to the ground was the good meat of the grain. And so David, knowing, living in an agricultural society as he did, he knows that people know what it is to thresh out grain, and they know what it is to have the chaff just blow away. And so he says the wicked are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now, if you just take that first half of the phrase and you read, hey, sinners are not going to stand in the judgment? You have to read the second half of the phrase to know what he's saying. He's saying there are a people who are going to stand before God. There are a people who are going to be in the assembly of the righteous. That's what he's referring to as the judgment. And the wicked aren't going to be there. Because the wicked are going to be driven away from God into outer darkness. They're going to blow away like the chaff. 
and the righteous are going to stand before God in the assembly of God. And then the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows. We saw this a lot in the book of Isaiah. God knows. Or God himself saying, I know. I know. And I kept emphasizing it to say, God really does know. He created everything. He designed everything. As we've been looking in the early parts of the book of Revelation on Sunday, what we've seen is a lamb with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that go throughout the whole earth. He knows. He's aware of what's going on. So walking after righteousness, studying the law, the teaching of God, Conducting your life in such a way that you are separate from the wicked sinners of this world is not for nothing. There is actually a reward at the end of it all because God knows. Because he knows the people who belong to him. The Lord knows the footsteps, the walking, the way, the sitting, the actions of the righteous. But here's the contrast. But the way of the wicked will perish. Now, it's not an accident that as Ezra and the priests were compiling these psalms, that they started out very first psalm with the condition of all mankind and the separation of all mankind between the righteous and the wicked. And the very next thing they approach is why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? What is the difference between the righteous and the sinners? The Lord, the Messiah, he places them right there in the middle immediately after describing the human condition and the righteous and the wicked and how the wicked gather together to take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. There's a demonstration of evil for you. There's a demonstration of sinners. They're sitting in the council of their own wickedness, and part of that council is, we don't want Christ. We don't want God. We don't want any of that. The Lord is anointed. We don't want to know anything about that. Next week, we will pick up right there, and we will talk about God's reaction to the cynics and the haters of this world. That is your introduction to the Book of Psalms. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.